This is episode 17 of the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus De Silva, and my guest today is one Mr. Rob Spock. Thank you for joining us today, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, kind of got a lot of things. I'm not too sure. We were kind of joking about this off the air that we're not too sure where this podcast is going to go because there's so many places for it to go. <laughs> so, Lots of facets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Lots I'm, I'm excited. Jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so I think to get started, uh, just tell us a little bit about where you're from and kind of a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, and uh, we'll, we'll dive right in. Well, born and raised here in uh, Vancouver, I guess one of the few that I think are uh, left. Uh, <laughs> seems like everybody is from everywhere from all over the world here. Um, you know, pretty typical uh, childhood, happy childhood, you know, um, Eastern European parents, but uh, they weren't uh, all that typical. They kind of exposed us to a lot of stuff uh, growing up, me and my sister. So uh, I think that's uh, kind of what contributes to a lot of who I am today, you know. Uh, kind of a little bit ADD with all my uh, hobbies and uh, <laughs> I can relate <laughs> you got fun stuff yeah yeah life's too short not to uh, try try different things all the time right well and it's funny because we we've known each well I, I mean I guess I've known you my whole life yeah and my dad has known you for your whole life <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah so so neighbors uh, growing up in in uh, Vancouver there yeah, grew up next door, and uh, yeah. And so you're a very outdoorsy guy, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, okay. But when did so? Because talking off the air, because um, well, actually, since we're we're getting going, so most people I think at this point are aware of the uh, David Goggins four by four by forty eight challenge, uh, which. Today is February 16th? 16th, yeah. Yeah, and that uh, is coming up in a couple weeks. What, so that's so, 20 days? Yeah, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's coming up fast and furious. And um, you've been um, going, I, I would say, above and beyond and, and really helping me out. And uh, we actually did a run earlier today. We got one yeah. scheduled tomorrow. Um, yeah. So when it comes to the outdoorsy stuff, uh, not just running, but other things as well. W was that something that you more got into later on in life or was it earlier on as well? Um, you know, earlier on growing up as a kid, our parents had us always outside out in the woods, you know, my dad was a fisherman. So we'd go out to the river and, you know, we'd go hiking while he fished and, you know, kids, we family had a cabin down in uh, the States, down in Point Roberts and, you know, parents would cut us loose, go play in the woods. <laughs> and it's sort of that kind of where it, it took off, you know, and they put me in Boy Scouts. So that, you know, that contributed a lot to who I am to the Boy Scouts. It was a great program. It introduced me into, uh, you know, hiking and backpacking and, you know, mountains. So, which has sort of become my passion now is mountain climbing. And your folks, they're, they're first generation, right? Yeah, they are. Yeah. First generation. But they're very, um, like, that's a very Canadian thing that really getting outdoors and, you know, that, that's, a, that, I don't know if maybe that's a Polish thing that is an immigrant thing that does seem a bit atypical. It is, it is you know, just looking at, um, you know, my 
friend, my parents' friends and their kids, they didn't do any of the stuff that we did or weren't exposed to, you know, I still look at this day, like, you know, Eastern European food is pretty bland generally, you know, like they've got salt, pepper, and garlic. That's about it. (laughs) And my parents were always, they were introducing us to Indian food, to, uh, you know, Chinese, like all sorts of cultural foods from all over the world. And we're lucky here in Vancouver, we have all of that. And so my parents, they would like constantly expose us to different stuff. And then, you know, the outdoors, it was like, they'd put us in like uh, summer uh, programs and kids camps. And, you know, they just wanted us uh, just to experience things. And your sister as well? Yeah, she's, um, she's not quite to the extreme that I am, but she is, uh, you know, quite active in the outdoors and in, in sports in general. But uh, yeah, she gets out hiking and uh, she was big into fishing there for a while. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's very funny. Stuff, so, oh, you know, really embracing that. And, you know, I mean, I guess it might even be a bit to say it's a Canadian thing might even be a bit of an overgeneralization, but definitely a West Coast Canadian thing. Yeah, very much so. But a lot of people, when they think of Canada, they think of the outdoors, they think of the wild, you know. And we're embracing that now, at least. <laughs> yeah, and we are. Yeah, very much so. And you know, so your childhood, you know, pretty uh, pretty interesting from that regard. And then kind of heading into your, your teens and young adult life, um, what were you getting up to around that time? Um, I guess teens, uh, a lot of, in my teens, it was uh, Boy Scouts. So I was doing that. And then... Um, late teens and then into my 20s, I got into rugby really big. And, uh, you know, I was playing for um, several different teams at the, at the time. I was playing for um, Simon Fraser University for the varsity team. I was playing on their uh, men's side team. And then I was playing, because um, I was volunteering with the police department. So I was playing on the uh, Vancouver Police uh, rugby team, which was a social side. So that, 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 occupied a lot of my time I actually kind of went away from the outdoors when rugby was uh there you know I wouldn't do it as much anyways I'd get out for the odd hike here or there but you know not like now I'm out whenever I get a chance basically well and competitive sports too you know it's a pretty big commitment so you know it was it was you know I had practices uh four days a week and then I had uh two games on a weekend because I was playing so many uh you know club uh team games so Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then kind of heading. So then, you know, you're, you're doing rugby and do, doing some, at least kind of staying at least somewhat involved in, in outdoorsy stuff. And well, I'll just ask you just straight up and then you can explain it. Um, when did you start working at the Coliseum? Oh, Coliseum. I actually started working there when I was 18. Okay. Yeah. So and, it's around uh, I was actually, believe it or not, they had me working in the beer garden. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think they didn't realize I was only 18, but they had me in there working in the beer garden, uh, you know, kind of policing people where they could and couldn't go in the building without their beer. And, uh, you know, um, it actually turned out to be a really fascinating, great job. Uh, you know, as I was telling you, uh, the Coliseum, they had, um, well, that's where the Vancouver Canucks play. So... I moved up from the beer garden to working the uh, Canucks dressing room and bench. So, you know, um, I could, well, I worked, you know, right at the dressing room. I got to meet all the Canucks. If there was a game, I could watch the, uh, 
the game from the bench. But uh, truth be told, um, I don't watch sports. So I never took advantage of that. Even when the Canucks were in, uh, in the 94 Stanley Cup uh, playoffs, I didn't watch one of the games. I just kind of hung out in the back and read my, my book. <laughs> and, uh, but what I really liked about that job, though, was um, music. I like music and concerts. So I got to uh, work all the concerts that came through Vancouver because um, at the time, the Pacific Coliseum and the Forum were the two major, if not only large venues that uh, could uh, host these performances. And uh, I ended up moving up to working the front and backstage for all these shows. And uh, man, it was a lot of fun. I got to meet a lot of performers. Like, you know, pretty much you name them, I've met them. You what know, were um, what were some that stood out? E either meeting them, like stories from meeting them personally, or the shows themselves. Um, okay, well, both um, performance-wise, and I tell people this, and they're they're kind of shocked because it's not my genre of music, but it was Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Oh, that's a pretty good combo. <laughs> Those two, believe it or not, they had such great stage presence. It was amazing. Like they played off their each other so well on stage and with the crowd, they were like consummate performers. Uh, it, there was nothing that I've seen could match those two on stage. It was pretty neat. Um, you know, there's been phenomenal performers that I've seen, you know, um, Tom Petty was one, ZZ Top, um, Metallica, U2, um, you know, and you get to meet a lot of these guys. A lot of them are kind of, you know, aloof. They just do their, not aloof, I wouldn't say. They just, they're just doing their own thing. They're, they're, that's their job, their work. But um, Dave Grohl, super nice guy. Chatty would come over and, you know, talk with you. And uh, he was, you know, as they say, he was a super nice guy. He really is. And um, Bare Naked Ladies, Canadian band. Those guys were pretty, pretty great there. They had a lot of fun. They really enjoyed what they were doing. Um, I don't know who else, like there's so many and you know, you kind of forget all these stories. I know when you get put on the spot too, it's like, oh, and then as soon as we end the, then the podcast, you'd be like, oh, this band, oh, this band. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Know, yeah. Well, we were that. talking about Lenny Kravitz today. I saw Lenny yeah. Kravitz, you know, and um, that was, uh, they put on a heck of a show then. Yeah. And uh, that'll always remember that show because Blind Melon opened for him. And um, they were kind of, uh, they had a one a kind of big hit song. And I never forget the band, the lead singer's name was Shannon Hoon. And they were opening up and um, there was this mother daughter that got tickets from a radio station front stage um, for this show and the daughter was about like 13 14 and the mom was like well you're not going by yourself so I'm going <laughs> so show hadn't started and um, the mom goes and she goes and picks up uh, popcorn and um, drinks and all that kind of stuff for her daughter and as she's coming back on this the, this, this concert started and this blind melon was on uh, stage and uh, anyways the lead singer was just whack he was like he was on something and he came out naked <laughs> oh yeah and this poor woman because i'm working the front stage and we're all looking going oh dear god she's yeah, walking up with this hot dogs and she's like you know going to see her daughter and she gets halfway across the front of the stage and she looks up and she realizes the lead singer's naked she drops her tray 
he makes eye contact with her. He sees this and he's, he's a mess. So he runs over there and he's grabbing his <laughs> shaking it at her. And so she starts running back down the stage across the front of the stage. He runs on the top of the stage, heads her off, stops. She, she runs back. She's like a little pinball, eh? And this guy, he was completely, well, I, and I remember I was back there and I was with uh, Lenny Kravitz standing next to him and he was pissed. He was pissed. <laughs> yeah, because you're, you're, you're opening, you're supposed to warm the crowd up for the guy, not <laughs> discard oh, him off for life. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was quite the, quite the spectacle. And he ended up running off stage, going into the bus, and I, the police took him down at gunpoint. He was on top of the bus dancing. Oh, yeah, it was quite a gong show. That was definitely <laughs> that was definitely memorable. Yeah, rock and roll right there. Jeez. Yeah, memorable. Yeah, because it scarred you too. Having to look at that. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, you don't expect that. You know, you, you see a lot of weird, weird things, but uh, that definitely uh, took the cake. Yeah. I even remember there was uh, I can't remember. It might have been in Seattle. Um, wasn't that when Led Zeppelin they they put a shark and a like a baby shark in a in the hotel tub or something? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a famous hotel that's out on a pier, and they yeah. were fishing out the window, and they caught right. a, a mud shark, and they just they yeah left it in Kept the uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I got to manage to see um, Page and Plant. They came and played together. They did that one little okay. reunion. Yeah, so that and, would have been the '90s uh yeah yeah that would have been the 90s yeah yeah and uh that was a great show and uh never forget um jimmy page you know like rock god right mm -hmm. so to speak um he gets off stage and there's a couple friends meeting him and they get into some old beat up 1984 mustang that was parked inside the coliseum <laughs> they get in this thing and off they go like it was just like no limo no nothing it's just this beat up mustang it meets his friends and it's like hops in and off they go yeah i remember yeah. um my guitar teacher actually he used to own uh this would have been 86 88 something like that and he used to own his own uh, little guitar shop um just down the street from the coliseum there and okay. ACDC was in town. Um, so this, yeah, th this was after Bon Scott. And yeah. Angus Young came into the shop to buy some guitar strings before the show. <laughs> yeah. He's like, hey, what? <laughs> but, you know, Vancouver is a good town for that. Because I, I have heard some other musicians as well who have said, you, you know, because it's, I don't know, I guess it's it's a bit of a smaller city. And I don't know, I, I guess we, we like to think we're a little more polite. So I think we kind of respect their their privacy a little bit. Like we're not getting all up in their face and, you know. Very so, Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Give them their space, you know, like yeah. let them do their yeah. thing. Not usually too many annoying people. There's annoying yeah. people everywhere, but we like to try to keep it on the on the down low, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. A little quiet, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I know sometimes, though, like we get um, – hang arounders backstage like not backstage but they would hang outside the coliseum where the buses were and so forth and you know people think backstage is big parties going on which <laughs> sometimes there have been you know but i'd say 90 percent of the time the performers go right off the stage into a vehicle before the lights even come on mm. they're out of the building they're gone they're gone to their hotel right and uh do you remember garth brooks there okay country guy 
he had put out a video just before he came to Vancouver, like a concert video and everything. And in his concert video, he showed him, uh, show himself uh, helping the uh, roadies take down the stage. And he said, you know, I, I help uh, take down the stage after every show. And, you know, I stay with the last worker. Well, he was gone before the lights even came on. <laughs> but there must have been about 200 people waiting for him to come out because they thought he was in there and he'd come out and sign. And I, myself, and I guess about 10 other people, we had to work until these people would leave. Oh, right. And usually people would hang around till like concert would finish around 1030 in Vancouver, noise bylaws, that kind of thing. And we stayed there till five in the morning. <sighs> they refused to leave. I even For took Garth two, Brooks. <laughs> I, yeah, I took two people inside and walked them through, showed the change room, everything gone. And I said, now go outside and tell him he's gone. They go out and tell these people the people are like, nope, nope, he's still in there. For Garth Brooks. That's the funniest part of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny that you actually mentioned the the bylaw thing because um, I went and saw, so before the uh, Guns N' Roses reunion tour, I guess it was a few years ago, they started now. Um, this was mm, pre, pre 2010. So it was something like that. Not, not too long ago. Um, God. 2010 was 11 years ago now, now that I think yeah. about it. <laughs> oh, geez. But yeah, it was around, it was around that time. And yeah, uh, yeah, it was around that time. Oh God. Yeah, I just had a, had a little reflection there. Oh geez. Yeah, yeah time flies. <laughs> and uh, it was Guns N' Roses, but the, so that was a Chinese Democracy uh, album? Oh yeah, yeah. That was Axl Rose's kind of project. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing was that, so you probably weren't, working there at this point in time but no. the um the guns and roses had come before um a few years prior and axel ne uh, didn't show up for the concert and apparently everybody just like completely trashed like they they were like rioted inside the coliseum that's right was it the yeah i think it was i wasn't in town i was away for that i wasn't at that show but yeah i remember that it was a pretty big deal. Like it was like locally, like that was like, that's like a really odd, you know, it's kind of like the Stanley cup riots. It's like, yeah, that's a very unusual thing to happen. Yeah. And then I remember, so then I was at the second show and we're there, you know, you get in at a concert for like seven, seven thirty, something like that. Yeah. And we're, we're, and we all know, like, we remember I wasn't at that first show, but you know, you, everyone's talking about it and you kind of know. Right. Yeah. And you know, 9 o'clock. And then it's like, people are starting to be like, you know, this guy's not going to show up again. And it was yeah. about 10, 15 and Axel walks out on stage and perform and they yeah. performed a, a three hour concert. <laughs> and even on stage, I guess somebody said to Axel, like, like you guys got to shut this down, like because because of, of those bylaws. And I remember he's on stage and he goes, "Fuck that bylaw shit, we're staying out here." <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, the crowd goes nuts. Everyone loved that. But oh yeah, it was a good concert. <laughs> there was one show where they actually turned the lights on in the Coliseum. Oh wow! Yeah, 
I couldn't tell you who it was, but yeah, I remember they turned on the lights and, you know, the band kept playing Yeah, and yeah. eventually they just kind of, you know, it just kills the vibe when the place is all bright. Right. Mm-hmm. I know that, you know, those, but you know, it's funny, like those experiences, like I've had, yeah, I mean, I'm a young guy still, but I mean, I would say, you know, I've had, I've got a couple memories in particular from concerts. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I, about a half, you know, half a dozen and I, and I go to lots of shows that, you know, yeah. luckily, um, and you know, it, some of those things can be, you know, you'll remember them for your entire life, you know, hopefully in oh, a positive yeah. way. You in know, a positive it, way. Oh yeah. 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 But, you know, those experiences are, can be very profound, you know, there was one show where it was, I know all we're doing is talking about music, but that's okay. These, these are the yeah, tangents yeah. we like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was um, a triple bill and this was in Oregon. I was going to say, yeah, it wasn't Seattle, it was Oregon. And it was uh, uh, Kiss, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, and someone opened for them who was like, de- not, not quite as, as big as those three, but I can't remember who it was, but kind of like, um, it wasn't the Sex Pistols, but kind of like that level. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that was a... <laughs> Talk about one-upping, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. holy cow. Yeah, yeah. Ted Nugent, I remember him. He would come out and he'd bring a bow, bow yeah. and arrow. He was shooting bows at deer deer mannequins on the stage. Yeah, he's a wild boy, show. that guy, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hell of a guitar player, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And so how long were you at the Coliseum for? So you started at 18, and then when did you... And were you doing just beer garden stuff? So they needed the beer garden stuff, then front stage, backstage. backstage. And then did you get into bouncing there too? Well, that was part of the whole thing was like okay. the evictions and all that type of stuff. So that, that all kind of played into one. And I think I was there till I'd say 2006. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Around then 2005, 2006. Oh, and actually, let me ask you, because I've always, I've always wondered about this as far as like bouncing people out goes, like how much do you have to worry about like actual altercations with people? Cause I know, like, I imagine most of the people you're throwing out are, you know, generally heavily intoxicated. <laughs> That's usually why they're getting bounced a lot, out. A lot of them are, a lot of yeah. them are. Yeah. But, but is that something like, obviously like you have to, it's not like you're going out for a, a Sunday stroll, you know, you, you, you kind of have to, you know, escort people out. Right. Yeah. But how, do, how does that kind of work? Like that whole sort of vibe? Well, you know, um, you know, obviously there's been, there was some definitely some full on physical, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> altercations and incidents you know with people but generally it's not too much of an issue generally if you talk to people the right way they'll go um and it kind of helps when you've got like 10 big guys standing behind you talking. (laughs) (laughs) you know there were there were definitely some monsters there you know we had a couple of guys that were over six foot you know 250 260 pounds and you know people just kind of take a look even if they're drunk they kind of take a look and go okay i'll go you know so and you know you'd pretty much have to do something really really stupid mm-hmm. uh, to get thrown out of a show or a hockey game you know it's generally not for nothing and generally people were given a warning before something would happen you know 
So it's not too bad then. No, no, it's not too bad. You know, people think, uh, you know, always the, the worst and they want to hear all like this crazy excitement and stuff. But, uh, you know, there were the odd time, but generally it's it's not what you think. It's pretty mellow. Kind of like backstage at a concert. Very rarely is it a big party and people think it's, you know, full on orgy going back there. And, <laughs> you know, you know, more often than not, the, like the band's gone. It's just chill, quiet. Yeah. There is a part of me that is sad to hear that, though. Yeah, I know, I know. Everybody wants to hear. <laughs> Nobody yeah, wants to hear nah. the guy went back to the hotel to bed. <laughs> yeah, ah, crap. You know, no, that's okay. Uh, yeah. So then, two. So two thousand six. Yeah. And what did you do after that? Ended up working. That's when uh, you know I got married at the time and had a daughter. She was young. So kind of everything took a backseat was to raising my daughter and then it, you know, turned into a divorce. So, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of focus on, uh, on that, on getting out and, uh, you know, paying lawyer bills and that kind of stuff. So <laughs> yep. <laughs> I basically for quite a few years there, I just put my nose to the grindstone and worked and, uh, spent time with my daughter, you know, and uh, now she's, she got older and so forth and, her friends become a little bit more important than uh, dad. That's when I kind of got full on more so into my uh, outdoor stuff. Okay. And so actually, so, since we went there, um, since we were kind of at that point, tell us what you do uh, for a living right now, because it's, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are kind of shocked. I, uh, I actually take care of all the uh, police dogs in the police dog facility for the city of Vancouver. So it's... Uh, get to play with dogs all day you know smart dogs <laughs> and um if you can't answer this question i'll edit this out because it might be a little too behind the scenes um but the reason i'm asking you're not a cop and no i'm not i'm a civilian a civilian employee yeah so is that um because to me i i would just assume that a, a another police officer or even like a retired officer someone would be doing that job, not a civilian. Yeah, you know, it. Uh, a lot of it is, even with the policemen, there's not many of them that have police dog experience. So how I kind of fell into this is, I've actually been uh, working with police dogs at the Vancouver Police Department for almost 30 years now. Oh, wow, okay. So way back in the 90s, a friend of mine worked as a, what they call a quarry. So you'd play the uh, bad guy and you do the bite work. Oh, okay. So, you know, you get to shoot. <laughs> That's and, pretty know, cool. <laughs> you know, run, you know. And uh, so, a friend of mine phoned me up and he said, Hey, would you be interested in uh, quarrying? And I was like, Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> that sounds like a rush. <laughs> so, uh, I started doing that. And then I ended up like quarrying a lot with those guys. And there was a civilian employee that uh, his name was Brad Stevens. And he was the what they call the kennel attendant. He took care of the, the facility and all the dogs. And he was there for 36 years full time. And when he retired, I got a phone call from uh, um, the, the sergeant at the dog squad. And he was like, hey, Rob, would you be interested in taking over Brad's job? He goes, he's retiring. And, um, you know, there's we trust you. And, uh, you know, we'd like to have you if you'd be interested, if you'd like to interview for this position. And I was like, yeah. 
And uh, so I went down, uh, interviewed. There was over 200 applicants. Whoa. Yeah. And, um, you know, I managed to uh, get it. You know, I did have a lot of experience with dealing with police dogs and, you know, police culture. And uh, so that that played a big factor into me getting the position. And uh, it's a great job. I love it. You know, I, I, I have no problem getting up in the morning every day and going to work. Well, it's funny because uh, on the last uh, podcast with uh, Darren McDonald, we were we had a we talked in pretty uh, great detail um, the positives of having a solid network, not oh, yeah. just per, not just professionally but personally as well. And I mean, two hundred applicants. That, yeah, that's something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, it's a you know, I guess it was a desirable job because I guess. Well, I love it. So, you know, it's, there's something to it, you know, uh, get, you know, you work with that really beautiful, smart animals and, uh, you know, the officers that we work with, we are our own little contained building. They're, you know, all type A personalities, really mm-hmm. bright people, go, go getters. So it's a lot of fun working, you know, amongst them. And I don't want you to get into too much detail just because I, again, the, you know, behind the scenes, I don't want to, you know, be in trouble or anything like that, but just generally speaking um, with the dogs, what exactly, so you, you train them, you, cause I know that you spend a fair bit of time with them it is the purpose of training them so that they go into the field. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'll do some quarrying, um, not so much anymore, but we actually have two full-time trainers. Okay. Yeah. Two full-time trainers that do all the training. Our dogs generally are lately the past, I'd say 10 years, they come via a uh, broker out of LA that brings the dogs over from the Czech Republic. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah. Dogs are anywhere from 10 to 20,000 US. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> a <Some> pretty penny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're uh, they're they're worth, worth a fair bit, but uh, you know you got to pay for quality. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you're investing a lot in training, um, you want to make sure you have a good stock. You know, and the dogs from Europe, they they go back. You know, the lineages they've got them all documented. They go way back. You know, so we don't want dogs with you know end up with you train a, up a dog and pay this amount of money and then you get like hip dysplasia. And, and you can't just replace the dog overnight. You know, it's, I believe now it's about a 16 week training program when they come in. Okay. Before, before they can hit the road and then they have to validate every year and they're constantly training. Like every week they're training, training, training. So these dogs are pretty on, on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how many dogs roughly? We've got 16 Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, we've got it. We've got when we're at full full capacity, we're at sixteen. Wow. We're uh, we just put out uh, three on the road, three new ones on the road two weeks ago, and we got two more that'll start training in March. Yeah, that's pretty. That's sixteen is a lot. Yeah, that's I. I wouldn't have. I kind of would think like four, five, like kind of like a handful you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. We've, we've got one of the largest canine departments in uh, North America. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And my position as a kennel attendant, as far as I know in North America, I'm the only one that has, they have a civilian person working as a kennel attendant. 
So I was on to something then with the civilian thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is very interesting. Well, yeah. And I mean, yeah, that just goes to show like the fact that you were, well, the, you know, and the experience too, because I, I'm sure the fact that you had rapport, not only with the people that you worked with, but with the dogs themselves too, like you're, you're- with the dogs themselves. Oh yeah. You know, these dogs, they're, they're, they're not your regular household pets. Well, you know what? I shouldn't say that. We, we, we source dogs that are very, very stable and they go home with all the handlers. Right. So the dogs that I get at the kennels are if guys go away on vacation or um, if they go away on course or, you know, uh, wife is having a baby and, you know, they can't really walk dogs. So, you know, the dogs stay at the kennels and uh, I take care of them, you know, feeding, ordering all the food, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That sounds like that's very interesting. Yeah. It was just, it's just such a, well, like you said, like you're the only civilian <laughs> doing that in North America, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty unique uh, position. A lot of people, when they ask me what you do, they, they kind of, they, you get the head tilt. Like, yeah. You do what? <laughs> and uh, I got, uh, I got a couple questions on that actually, but as far as when you started to now, obviously you got many years experience. Um, What's something that you wish you would have known at the start that you know now, as far as just being, maybe not even necessarily with training the dogs, but just in, in your job in general? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hard to say, you know, I, I don't really look back and regret anything or try to change things. Um, you know, I, when I came into this uh, job, like, basically if like i said a friend phoned me up they needed quarries they basically needed bite dummies <laughs> and he was like are you interested and i'm like yeah but i had no idea about equipment or dog i just like kind of saw a thing on tv one time and thought yeah that sounds kind of cool and i went down there but you know i took a keen interest so then i got you know kind of trained up as quarrying and i was uh quarrying quite a bit and uh just because i loved it so much you know, what does that feel like? Like not, not so much literally, but just, um, psychologically, cause it, that's gotta be a bit, you know, it's, it's a bit of a Russian, you know, yeah. even, even to this day, you know, I, I did a bit of bite work uh, with one of the guys, uh, at work today, just, you know, doing some training and you know what, you always get that rush. Like when you look down the field and you got this fur missile coming at you, <laughs> <laughs> and they they launch and uh you know they get on to you i mean um and they you know i'm a big guy i'm 195 pounds and uh 65 pound you know one of our lighter dogs he can pull me around like there's no tomorrow you know and to them to the dogs they don't think it's anything like noble what they're doing out on the street to them it's like their favorite toy yeah. it's fun yeah like, yeah yeah, they don't, they don't put it together that they're hunting a bad guy. To them, it's like, oh, a ball. Right. You know? Just instinct. Oh, yeah. And their tails are going and they're all happy. And yeah. I know it was funny on, um, uh, well, I guess you haven't seen it because I know, well, actually, I'll, I'll throw this at you after, but uh, the movie uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, actually, so, well, I'm going to go on my tangent, but I want to go on a quick tangent with yours. How much TV do you watch? 
Uh, yeah, this is this is pretty funny. It's um, so about a week ago was the first time I plugged in my TV in eleven years. So it was sitting there, not plugged in, and I'm just so active. I never get a chance to watch TV. It's just guys at work were going on about uh, this show Yellowstone. And they're like, you got to watch, you got to watch, you got to watch it. So one evening I was kind of sitting around at home and I plugged it in and said, oh, I'll watch this Yellowstone. And I have it on Amazon Prime video because I have Amazon and it's a damn good show. But I got to three and it's like, I just don't have time to watch. <laughs> yeah, so I, I will repeat, he did say 11 years. There's 11 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't plugged, uh, plugged in my, just finally plugged it in. Well, um, we'll circle back to that because I've been thinking about that. So I'll, I'll make a point about that after. Um, but for, uh, yeah, anyway, for just relating to the dogs, one of the funny things. So on, on that movie, uh, Brad Pitt, I'm a huge Brad Pitt fan yeah. uh, just because he's a total beast. I love that guy. And uh, he has a, ooh, is it a Rottweiler? It's a Rottweiler or a Pitbull? People are like, oh, stuff we want. I'm terrible with dogs, but yeah, yeah. You know, my little brother, he's like the the dog expert. He's like, yeah, dog expert. you're an idiot. Yeah, it's, it's this type. But anyway, whatever type of dog it is, um, not to give it away, but there's a particular scene where the dog is a very well-trained dog and it ruthlessly attacks uh, some people. I don't want to spoil it, so I'll be vague if you haven't already seen it. But yeah. yeah. And I, I always say to my dad when I watch that, I'm like, that when I get a dog, that's the dog I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they're well trained. It's not like they're psycho crazy animals. They're controlled. They're all very controlled. And that's the big thing is they do they do constant work, constant training, weekly, if not daily. It's all control work, control work, control work. And I mean, these the dogs that we have, they're they're so stable and like they're very confident dogs. When you get a confident, stable dog, that's a friendly dog. They're not fearful of people. They're they're pleasant. I you know um, I've had the opportunity to bring some of these dogs home, especially some of them that haven't been trained. Um, uh, I have no problem. My daughters come down to work, and I've let her pet them and play with them, and they, you know, lick her. It's it's uh, they're they're not like what people think. These these, you know vicious you know dogs out hunting people but well you know when there's they, a time in a there is a time in a place right, yeah. that, you know they can turn on that's for sure you know that's that's their job but uh you know on my end i get to i don't get to see that i get to see the nice sweet dogs well i actually have one here with me this evening oh right yeah that's right well you know but that's like people yeah too. yeah yeah you know people yeah, are just like people, just mm. like people. And that's why it's sensitive, you know, to not to get too hippy dippy, but you know, that energy that you're putting out, if, if you're around, especially like, I'm sure dogs like that, like if you're kind of nervous or uncomfortable or fearful, it's like, eh. Oh, they know, they know, right. Mm. They know. And uh, they do, they pick up and it, it's so interesting because, you know, we've got these 16 dogs and they're paired up with these handlers and these dogs are, they spend more time uh, with these dogs than with their families. Cause these dogs go home with them. Then they go to work with them and they're always with them. So I can really see the personalities 
um, in the dogs uh, from the handlers. Like it's it's like it's pretty neat. Like you can see like ah okay I can see that I can see why you that dogs it's because you do that you know it's uh, it's it is it's pretty neat. They do take out the personality. And I, I want to get into, I want to leverage off this and I want to get into uh, some of the outdoorsy stuff that you're doing. Um, I guess it's not really work, it's volunteer work. Yes. Um, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, I volunteer with the uh, Alpine Club of Canada. I'm actually the uh, vice chair for the Vancouver section. And uh, i been in this position for I guess this this year, and um, before that I've been quite involved with them. I you know I teach help teach courses with their basic mountaineering course. Um, one of the hut custodians for uh, two of their alpine uh, huts. Um, yeah, I've been involved with courses and um, you know trip leading, all sorts of stuff. So it, it you know takes a bit of uh, time, but uh, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. I've met so many incredible people, a uh, great networking, you know, like we were saying, uh, there's so many people with so many different facets of life uh, that are involved in the, the Alpine club. And uh, it's, uh, it's been really great. And how, so what, as a member, how did you get involved with that? You just, did a friend invite you out to that and no, actually, you know, I was um, into like hiking and backpacking and so forth. And, you know, um, I really wanted, and I was a rock climber at that time, but I wanted to get into climbing mountains. And um, so I just kind of Googled and came across the uh, Alpine Club of Canada, Vancouver section, and uh, I joined up with them and uh, went out on a couple of trips and they had some courses. And uh, then I started, uh, you know, getting involved and helping. And uh, then they asked me, you know, can you do a little bit more? Can you do a little bit more? And then would you like to, uh, you know, apply for the executive? Um, and I was like, okay. So I first, my first executive position was with the, uh, as quartermaster. So I took care of all their gear because I'm a bit of a gear geek. So, you know, I, I know my gear and I've got lots of gear and <laughs> spend way too much money on gear. And uh, just been moving kind of up the chain. And uh, now, like I said, I'm doing the vice chair uh, position and uh, quite enjoying it. And how many years, um, how many years have you been involved with that now? One year is the, the vice, but. With the club itself about, I, I'd be guessing eight years. Oh, so that's decent. Yeah, that's a while. Yeah, yeah. I was quite proud. Of they, this year I was recognized. I was given a, what they call a Dawn Forest Service Award from the National Club for uh, all my volunteer work and uh, commitment to the club. So that was kind of neat to be recognized. I wasn't expecting that, so. That's always the best when it when it's not something you're expecting. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden you get a call and they say, hey, by the way, <laughs> so. And with those, because uh, you mentioned that you, you've you led trips, just as far as the, the experiences, um, what, what are some things that kind of stood out in, in your time with them? Well, with them, well, one of the big trips, we did a big club trip down to the Tetons to, to climb down in the States. And uh, that was a fantastic trip. I mean, the Tetons are this incredible mountain range that basically there's prairie and all of a sudden these 14,000 feet mountains like 
sitting there right in the middle of the prairie. It's uh, quite unique. So that was a really, really cool uh, club trip. Um, I don't do too much um, trip stuff with the club anymore. I'm more involved with the executive now. I've got a lot of my own uh, kind of trip partners um, to do. I've got partners for different types of, uh, you know, uh, tri uh, trips that we like to do in the mountains. And, um, but I get out every weekend and uh, still, I, still, I still like currently right now we're in the middle of winter and it's uh, backcountry skiing time. So I do backcountry skiing and, uh, you know, tie in the mountaineering. So we'll ski up to the top of a mountain and then ski off it all the way back. So uh, that'll take us into spring, which will take us into full on um, mountaineering season, you know, cramponing up and climbing. And that's always the big season because it's nice to travel on snow, hard pack consolidated snow. It's better than loose rock. And then in the summer, it turns into um, alpine rock climbing. So uh, we get into that. And uh, for that, generally, um, we got such great uh, around Whistler, Pemberton, Squamish. Pre-COVID, we'd go down to Washington a lot. And every year, I try to do um, at least a couple weeks in the Rockies, if not a month. So always get away and, uh, you know, have a lot of fun, a lot of fun doing that kind of stuff. It's not for everyone. But it's, my, it's my kind of thing. Yeah. For the, cause uh, I mean, we've been chatting uh, on the run, the runs that we've yeah. done. Um, but I, I'm, you know, my, my uh, I'm very interested in it, I, but I know virtually nothing about it um, for the, cause you mentioned uh, Alpine rock climbing. Is that um, something where you're harnessed in or you, you free like yeah you're harnessed in with ropes like the alpine uh, rock climbing is like where you would basically you'd hike into a base of a mountain and you'd start hiking until you can can't hike that you need to climb so you'd take protection with you and uh, ropes and harnesses and off you go to the summit and then uh, rappel off and hike out so and as as far as hunting goes, uh, when's the last time have you are you kind of stepped away from that for a while, doing more like adventure type stuff? Yeah, well, I've been doing. That's my big passion is the adventure uh, kind of stuff and mountain climbing. That's my big big passion, and um, as well as mountain running. But uh, I've also transitioned into a little bit of hunting, and uh, I got my hunting license when I was thirteen, but uh, never hunted. You know. I, Parents, you know, made me take the hunting course and get my hunting number and all that. But, you know, I was at that age where I just didn't want to hang out with dad and <laughs> his friends. And it just didn't appeal to me. But you get older and, um, you know, I see the value in getting your own meat. And uh, just this past uh, year, I took up uh, hunting and um, been lucky that um, the chair of the Alpine Club and now the Alpine Club has nothing to do with hunting at all. This is the kind of a side thing that we do like as friends. Um, she has been a lifelong hunter since she was a kid, uh, excellent hunter. And um, she has been um, basically mentoring me and uh, teaching me uh, the ropes. And uh, we went out for a couple of hunts this year and it was uh, fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Uh, what were you hunting? Uh, we went out hunting once for deer and the other time for moose. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now we saw lots of animals um, and they were, you know, in range, but they were not in season, the animals that we could take. 
So, you know, we did all the work, but there was nothing we could take. So, which is fine. That's part of the game, right? That's part of the game. So we'll, we'll give it a try again next year. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had, uh, I've had moose once unreal. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Beautiful, rich, rich meat. It's, uh, it's definitely uh, one of my favorite moose or elk, you know, like I said, grew up with my dad hunting. So I ate a lot of game growing up. So, you know, and, and hunting, you know, for years, it was quite taboo as well. It wasn't, uh, it was kind of frowned upon. Uh, not so much anymore. I'm finding, you know, when I, you know, I was kind of sheepish telling people that, oh, you know, getting into hunting and, uh, you know, I almost wouldn't tell people because you didn't want to hear any backlash, but mm -hmm. actually people are like, oh, really? You know, I'm actually kind of interested in that or, or my dad does that. And, uh, oh, if you get moose, you know, can I have some? And you know, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, come a bit of a full circle. Well, I, I think the, the difference to now is that I think the literature on it is a lot more um, respected. Yeah. Uh, and, and also now with podcasts and, and social media, like there's a lot of pretty prominent hunters out there who are, the, you know, what they, the, the ideology behind how they hunt, why they hunt um, is very positive. So I think it's starting to reflect because I'm very pro, uh, like it, you know, it's conservational hunting. It's you know, tags yeah. and animals that are in season. You know, so it's not like you're rolling up on a, you know, one of those uh, four by fours with a shotgun and a six pack of beer. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know that was your your stereotypical hunter that a lot of people, you know, growing up, that's what I thought it was. I thought it was like you know the hunter with the big beer belly, a bottle in one hand, and a. a you know, shotgun in the other and, you know, uh, off they go. And, uh, it's, it, that, it, it's not that way anymore. You know, it's like I said, there's a lot of, uh, respected hunters out there. I think conservation has done, um, a great job in instilling a lot of great rules to conserve animals. And they make you have to work for the animal, not just in the field, but you have to do your research now. So you can't be a dumb hunter anymore. If you are, you're going to, you're going to get fined. <laughs> yeah. Get in trouble. And Canada, I think Canada in particular, like the States is pretty good, but they like, they also have like private land. And so they kind of have some other stuff that's kind of gets a little bit wonky at times, but for yeah. the most part, it's still pretty damn good down there. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly Canada, I think does a really good job because the money from tags and like all the stuff that goes into it that hunters pay goes into conservation conservation yeah very important that people don't i think more and more are starting to realize that but it's yep. very you know it's very critical because that's a good reason you know it's a good reason to do it oh yeah 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 if that's your thing yeah if that's your thing <laughs> you know definitely like i said it's like mountain climbing or anything it's not your thing it's just you know i think everybody's just got to find their thing and as far as running goes, I know we're a little, little off topic here, but as far as running goes, because um, you, you, you know a lot of these ultra marathoners. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that was one thing. I, I started taking up running to um, become, uh, you know, fit so I could climb mountains better and faster. And um, it just basically uh, 
took off from there. I remember going out for my first run and running like four kilometers and it was so slow and I was like done. And, uh, you know, started reading about running. It's one of those sports that's been researched to death, you know, and there's formulas on how to do it and how to get good at it and fast. And I read any book and YouTube and podcasts that I could listen to and started building up my running. And, uh, next thing you know, I was at one point I was running 140 K a week and, uh, doing, um, you know, on a weekend, a buddy of mine, we'd go into the mountains and we do mountain runs of 50, 60 kilometers. And uh, we did some beautiful runs, covered some incredible territory, you know, from Washington to Pemberton. Um, it was, it's, it's been great. And while well, I still continue with, uh, with the running, um, and actually ramping up my distances uh, currently for uh, the summer season. And uh, yeah. And in the summer, how much running, uh, like on average? Um, I'll try to do anywhere from 70 to 100K a week in the summer. Yeah. And uh, usually we'll try to plan a couple of really big runs. Um, last year, we uh, there's a group of five of us. We ran a trail called the Rockwall Trail in the Rockies. And uh, that was a 60 kilometer day. So we find that, uh, you know, I kind of joke because it's like those trails and uh, a few of the ones that I've done, like the enchantments in Washington, Cathedral Lakes here in BC, generally that people do them as like backpacking multi-day trips. Right. But uh, the one thing about me, I'm an outdoorsy guy, but I hate sleeping in tents. Oh, okay. So I'd rather get fit and <laughs> run that trail uh, in yeah, the 60k trail than spend four nights out in a tent <laughs> that's a long time too though like oh yeah. yeah oh it is it's but it's it, it's it's quite rewarding when you're done i um it's become my soother it, it's funny because you have said well even today you, you were mentioning like you know running gets addictive and uh it is you know, I, I was on the drive home uh, today. Uh, it was kind of funny because even today, I'm like, the run kind of hurt my legs a little bit today for some weird reason. Like, yeah, it's kind of, it was short. Like, I've, we've already done longer ones than that. But I'm like, yeah, hey, you know, whatever. Just one of those days, right? Yeah. Well, and, pavement, it was pavement today. Yeah, that's probably why. And yeah. we picked up the pace a little bit. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting soft. I'm getting yeah, soft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to mix it up. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was so funny. Like I was even thinking, uh, on, on the drive home, I'm like, can't wait to do it again tomorrow, you know? So oh, yeah. it's already, and, and I'm a guy who has, um, well, I used to run playing soccer and I was yeah. good at it. Like I, I actually, I, I thought, well, I thought it was pretty good at it. I was pretty fast and good endurance and all that. But once that stopped, I mean, you couldn't pay me to, to, to go for a run, you know, just like for what? Like I'll go play, like, you know, I'll go play hockey or I'll MMA. Like, you know, I, I do yeah. other things to stay in very good shape, but just not that. Yeah. But that's eh, changing. <laughs> oh yeah. It changes. And you know, it's, it's a, it's a great thing. I never thought it was, uh, I, I don't know. I never thought of running as like a sport. I just thought of, you know, running is just, I don't know. It's just like walking. You just do it like whenever, but, um, once you get into it, 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 you know, for me, it's improved. Like when you improve your cardiovascular, it's improved everything, like a little bit more mentally sharp. Um, just, and then, 
being physical, it's just endurance. It's just, it's fantastic for uh, like doing all sorts of other sports. It just translates for uh, so many other things, um, you know, um, and you know, the great thing is, is like, if you travel, you know, all you need is a pair of runners and shorts. And uh, it's a great way. If you go to a new city for work or whatever, you just take your runners, go out for a run after work and uh, you get a good way to, to see a city. Get the lay of the land. Uh, yeah, yeah. The one thing, though, is uh, I was kind of surprised. Everybody said, oh, yeah, running's cheap. All you need is a pair of runners. Once you start running a lot, you realize that, uh, <laughs> yep. and you need every every two months, you need a new pair of runners, and they're like 200 bucks now. <laughs> well, and if you're doing, like, some of those runs that you're doing where you're up in trails, mountains, and stuff, like, you need gear, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, you got trail running vest and, uh, you know, you got to you got to carry like when you do some of those further ones that go way out into the middle of nowhere, you got to take your 10 essentials and, uh, you know, if something happens, you, you know, go over on your ankle, you got to be able to uh, hunker down and uh, survive a night or two. Um, I, I've, I, well, I think I actually might mention this to you too. I love Survivor, man. Especially oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, good show. Great yeah. show. Yeah. Love that guy. But I was always fascinated. Um, obviously, okay, you know, the physical toll that he goes through because he's doing, you know, he's filming a show, you know, it's, it's quite a different experience. Yeah. But I was always very fascinated with um, the type of, especially once I started reading a little bit more about the military, because, yeah. you know, they'll do operations, but they're basically surviving too because they're they're out in the middle of nowhere and they're on foot you know doing their thing so what are um because you even mentioned like 10 essentials you, you don't have to go through all 10 of them but how much gear um yeah just how, how much gear are you bringing into um maybe like one of those longer runs on the trail run so i'll have my trail running vest i'll definitely have uh, nutrition you know like a bunch of bars um uh, gels, um, fair bit of calories basically is what you take. Um, water for sure. Um, I also, I plan out my water on big runs. So, you know, nowadays with, uh, Google maps and some of the GPSs, uh, like Gaia that I use, you can find water sources along the way. So I'll have like a small water filter or a, what they call a life straw that you basically just plunk it in the Creek and you can drink you lets you drink clean water, no viruses, bacteria, or protozoa. Um, basically, I carry a small um, kind of, it's like a small sleeping bag, but it's it's sort of those tinfoil things. Oh, yeah, like a safety blanket kind of thing. Safety blanket, but this one's a little bit thicker. It's, it's about the size of a large coffee mug, but basically you can, you, know, <laughs> you can wrap yourself into it, you know, I mean, none of the stuff is uh, anything that's going to make you comfortable, but it'll make you survive the night, you know? Which is fantastic. And uh, I always carry an um, emergency beacon that hooks up to a satellite. So I can do an SOS if I have to, or I can pair it with my phone and I can communicate, you know, um, you know if, if something goes south, you know, at least you can call for help. Um, yeah, basically uh, a windbreaker jacket always, you know, even in the summer, especially if you're running in the mountains, the weather can change so fast. 
and so dramatic. I've, I've been in August in the mountains and there's been snowstorms. Oof, Canada. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy. You know, it's like you start at the beginning of the day and it's in the high twenties and all of a sudden it's like minus something up at the top. And, uh, so yeah, you got to bring all the, the kind of stuff. And like I said, generally the stuff I have is help me survive the night. It won't make me comfortable though. Yeah. Um, we're, we're kind of wrapping up here. Um, yeah. so I'll, I'll ask you one more thing and, um, We'll definitely be having you back on for sure. Cause I got questions for days. We could do an eight hour podcast. I'd, I'd still have uh, more energy to keep going, but uh, I just want to end it on this one. Um, what are your uh, like in for this coming summer for this season? Uh, do you have anything in particular planned? Like anything you're looking forward to or just kind of generally gearing up and you'll figure it out a little closer. Uh, generally gearing up. Um, one of my friends, Andre and I, uh, you might meet him tomorrow if he uh, comes out for the run. We've been talking about, um, we got shut down a couple of years ago to, to run what they call the Stein. It's the Stein river Valley trail. And um, it basically goes from uh, Lillooet area all the way down to Lytton. Um, and it's about a hundred kilometers oh. and about 4,000 meters of elevation gain. And we want to run that in a day. Oh, jeez. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A couple of years ago, we were trained for it and we were ready to do it, but we lost our weather window. Oh, so it, it just kind of, how, how big of a window is it? Well, you want to have um, at least, a, a, you know, a couple of nice days before your run, nice day of weather on your run, and then a couple of days of uh, weather afterwards. Like, you don't want to start your run knowing there's going to be a rainstorm because rainstorms can come in a day early, you know, or a day late. You don't want to risk it. You don't want to be in the high mountains with minimal gear and getting drenched because i mean that is in the middle of nowhere there's no cell reception there's no nothing you know and um, i've been into the stein i've hiked through there and uh, i know the way but if you get socked in up high you don't know where you are so you want to make sure the weather is good so we got we got shut down we we let it go too late in the season and uh i mean you're running at the night too so you want to try to have that balance of uh long days so you don't have to run as much in the night. You can kind of start in the uh, night on some of the, in the beginning and then transition to the day and use as much daylight through the hard sections and then uh, finish up. But we're kind of, uh, we've been playing with that idea to run that again this year. Is that a, uh, a popular trail or like, is like for someone to like, for what you're planning to do, is that something that a lot of people do? Or is that kind of your own? Not many people run it. There are a few guys that, um, do, uh, run it. The, the goal is to try to do it in 24 hours. Most people don't quite make it. They just get to like 25, 26. Um, they get lost a little bit or so forth. And, um, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's something else. There's a um, local guy. He just set a new record on it. He blew away everybody. I don't know. He, I can't, you know, I wouldn't quote me on it, but it was something like 10 hours. What? Yeah. This, this guy, he's a, he's a beast. His name is uh, Nick Elson. 
I can look up, uh, I'll have to look up what it, what he did, what he ran the Stein in, but everybody just kind of their jaw dropped and was like, what a freak. I love that guy. I love this guy already. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta look him up. If you look up uh, FTK's fastest known times, um, he just blows stuff away locally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So la I, I lied. Last question. Um, how do you train for something like that? Running lots of running and called time on your feet. So like, you know, some days you're just so exhausted, you can't run. Then you just go for a walk. You spend time standing on your feet, moving. And um, a lot of times, um, like yesterday, I went for a, uh, a run, uh, got home, ate dinner. Then I went for an hour walk. It's just time on your feet, time on your feet. And the nice thing when you're running in, or training for something like that, you can eat whatever you want. <laughs> yeah that is nice i have noticed that for me too i'm just like good thing my parents own a bakery because i'm just inhaling donuts and pies like a fat ass over here <laughs> we'll go there right after the run <laughs> yeah, that, that's the destination that's the that's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> one day you'll, you'll you'll they'll see you coming you'll see the sign just go closed <laughs> keep it moving keep it moving <laughs> well i want to thank you so much for coming on uh yeah, my pleasure uh, yeah, we'll definitely be doing, uh, you know, and, and the nice thing is now that, um, you know, it's kind of funny, like when you obviously, you know, COVID and, and stuff, it, you know, especially now, I mean, the, the quarantine fatigue, I think is pretty real for yeah a lot of people. Um, but, you know, it's very funny when you get, get a moment to look back and see how things have kind of worked out. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because if it wasn't for, for COVID, uh, I wouldn't be, I highly doubt I'd be doing the, uh, the four by four by 48. I mean, I think yeah. zero chance of that. And I've always, you know, hunting, I'm getting more interested in and, and all this, you know, stuff that you're doing, you know, all this outdoorsy stuff, um, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, now it's like, oh, you actually have opportunity to try different things. Time. One door closes, one door opens. Yeah, exactly. That's why you got to kind of keep keep an eye out for opportunities and yep. jump on them when they pop up they're always they're out there they're out there good times and uh yeah we'll be jumping on a few of those so good, okay good times ahead but yeah you thank bet. you so much for being here and uh yeah i'll be seeing you tomorrow you bet okay ciao hi everybody i hope that you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast as I'm recording this little segment right now, it is the evening of March 10th. Um, first of all, I just want to say very quickly that the next three to four episodes, I believe the introduction, I think for the one with Rob that you just listened to, I believe I introduced it as uh, episode 17. Um, so I think for the next few episodes, the I, I've changed the order. So the, the numbers are going to sound a little bit, uh, they're going to be just out of sequence. So uh, just kind of ride the wave with me on that one. It's just easier than going in and editing. It's a bit of a pain. So I figured I'd just say this now. So a couple of days ago, it was International Women's Day. And then last night, I watched The Mask of Zorro. And man, I forgot how good that movie was. Just everything about it is so great. Um, and the reason that I, I wanted to do this segment actually was because 
I was really blown away by Catherine Zeta Jones's character. I can't remember the name. Uh, I'm horrific with names. I, I remember all the useful information and discard all the un, unhelpful info and names are in the unhelpful info. Um, so I can't remember her name. I think it was Elena. And there was one scene in particular, well, throughout the movie, um, obviously we all know Catherine Zeta-Jones is just this stunning individual. And the thing that was actually very compelling to me while watching this movie was not only was her, I mean, her performance, her acting in that movie between her Banderas and Anthony Hopkins, it was just amazing trio. And, and she is, oh man, she did an excellent job in that role. But as far as her character is concerned, there's so many instances throughout this movie where she really displays exemplary fortitude. And there's one uh, little section that I, I want to talk about, um, but go watch this movie for yourself. If you haven't already seen it, I, I think it was released in like 1999. And it used to be one of my favorite uh, movies when I was a kid, which kind of makes sense considering I'm a Batman uh, nerd, let's just call it like it is. And uh, Zorro's, there's a lot of similarities between the, the mythology behind Zorro and, and Batman, but that's a conversation for a different day. Um, there's this one scene where uh, there's this, I guess it's a, a, a ball of some sorts, and it's this very um, fancy black tie event. And Elena is sitting, um, Catherine Zeta-Jones's character is sitting at, at the table with her father, who's this high-ranking, corrupt uh, official, government official. And there's like a dozen other of these high-ranking official political figures, military personnel, all this. And the scene opens up with her ba basically making these political arguments and, and essentially schooling these older men on, on whatever position she was talking about. And what really struck me was just the fact that this, and she's very young, like her character's in her 20s, and she just has such poise and charisma and, you know, the, this very, God, like her confidence was just, it was just incredible to watch. And it's actually quite funny because at the end of this really great interaction where she basically just schools everybody at the table, um, her father makes this really horrible mean nasty comment and as a like a joke at her expense and one of the coolest parts about that was she does this excellent job at you can see her facial expression is she's obviously hurt by what was a very hurtful comment but her body language remains strong and she does a good job at you can see she's upset and then she covers it up quickly and i, I just love the fact that she you know even though she got knocked down you know, she's like, nah, like, I'm not going to get knocked out, you know. And right after that happens, it's really funny because then she sort of pushes back. And I don't want to say what it is because, like, you just have to watch this movie because it is just a brilliant movie. And, and I think the score in that movie is one of the best. Um, I think it's equal to any Tarantino movie or any of those old spaghetti westerns with just this excellent score. Um, but, yeah, I just was really blown away by by this really strong intelligent well-spoken young woman who's you know trying to trying to you can really just see that she she's 
trying to make her her place in the world and she's doing an excellent job of it and i think as far as as women role models go um that character is excellent and Catherine zeta jones is acting in that uh, movie is just incredible as well uh second one that i want to i actually just want to say really quick it, it does feel kind of weird like singling out i'm gonna talk about two others um it kind of feels a little funny doing that because it almost seems like you know I mean, the only reason I'm doing that is because who wants to listen to me talk about this for three, four hours. Um, <laughs> but I just figured I'd take a few that jump out at me. And anyways, so next one would be for the older listeners. They're, they're going to get a kick out of this one. And for the younger listeners, they're not going to know what the hell I'm talking about. But the Mary Tyler Moore show was a sitcom back in the 70s. And well, kind of the same thing. I mean, Mary the character i believe her name was mary richards but mary tyler moore the actress as far as i mean that's as groundbreaking that, that was a very groundbreaking show um in the sense that it was named after a woman starring a woman and starred many other women including a young betty white and cloris leachman and valerie harper as well and there's a great, uh, the, the whole cast is is excellent and some real legends um, of comedy. And the, the show holds up still. I mean, it is still a hilarious TV show. And, and it's, yeah, it's just all around. It's just an excellent, excellent TV show. But the fact that, you know, it was named after her, starring her, and, you know, just so groundbreaking in what it did. And the character that Mary plays, she works at a news station and I believe she's a producer or something like that. But but whatever her position is, it's very critical to the uh, production of, of the news channel that, that they work on. And she's this young, again, you know, this young, intelligent, well-spoken, strong-willed, funny, caring, uh, beautiful woman. And the other thing that was really cool about it is she also drives, you don't really see it much other than in the opening credits, but she drives this badass blue baby blue fastback Mustang. And it's just like one of the coolest cars. And yeah, it's just great. And, and the whole, the whole persona of that character, um, as far as a, a role model goes, I think is just excellent. She, she really, um, she really knocks it out of the park with that one. Um, lastly, the, what I'm going to point out is my all-time role model. Um, love her. Just totally love her to bits. Uh, Lady Gaga, for me, is just the ultimate. She's she's just a beast. I mean, let's just call it like it is. She's a total beast. Um, whether you like her or not doesn't really matter. But I think you have to respect how much she has done. And when you look at her as a musician, I mean, she's, she has... I mean, I, I like her music, so whether you like it or not, but I mean, I love her music. I think she's great. How much she dedicates, like how much time she dedicates to her craft, the fact that she can play piano, she sings, she writes, she, you know, puts her body at risk doing concert, like she, not at risk, but she puts her body on the line and, you know, she really sacrifices her body, um, to put on a good show, you know, wearing these ridiculous outfits and these giant platform boots and heels and dances around. Like it's, it's ridiculous. 
And as far as music videos go, the production value, the fashion, like the, the amount of effort and time that goes into what she does, I think sets her apart from pretty much everybody. She, she's in a class all her own. And not only that, but outside of the music world, her business, like her, her business savvy, her business endeavors. I mean, she just crushes it everywhere you go. And, you know, she's this little five foot two, you know, little, you know, small framed petite woman from, you know, humble beginnings at a, you know, I, I don't, can't remember where she's from. She's somewhere from New York. And I remember this one story that, well, and the fact that she's a Kiss fan definitely helps uh, how much I <laughs> appreciate her. But um, I remember there is this one interview that she was doing and I saw it on YouTube and, and she was talking about how she was at a deli with her boyfriend at the time. This is like the most New York start of a <laughs> story ever, but she's at some deli with this boyfriend of hers and she was saying to him, I'm not sure how early on this was in her life, but she said to him, I guess there was some song on the radio and, and she says to him, you know, one day I'm going to be on, I'm going to be, you know, a top 40 hit or whatever. And the guy kind of looked at her and went, you know, yeah, right. Kind of thing. Like keep dreaming, like really blew her off. And she looked at him and went, you know, you can go fuck yourself. And that was the end of their relationship. And then she went on to do exactly that. I mean, you can't help but love that. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, so, yeah. So I just kind of felt, since I was really uh, compelled by Catherine Zeta-Jones's performance um, yesterday, I figured, ah, you know what? Since it was only a, uh, I think it was just over an hour long podcast, why not throw in a little 15 to 20 minute uh, segment? on this because um, I felt it deserved it. And actually in conclusion, I will say as well, as far as role models go, and I mean, the women that I've had on the podcast, I mean, I picked them for a reason. I and mean, I picked them for all the reasons that I've already said, you know, these strong, independent, well-spoken, professional, hardworking women who are excellent in their field, really knowledgeable, and just really a joy to be around. And I just want to give a nod to them as well. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of about it. So thank you for listening to the extended version here. And we'll be back uh, next Wednesday. So thank you very much.